0: Well, we are
1: uh, back in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. And uh, just by way of kind of helping you get where we're at, Paul has just met up with Titus and has been told that the Corinthians have repented of their treatment of Paul. And they have repented of indulging the false teachers that were among them, including the one that openly rebuked Paul and accused Paul right in front of the congregation, which they did absolutely nothing about. That particular event was extremely painful for Paul. He had been their father in salvation and uh, had been a discipler, a faithful disciple of them, for some 20 months when he was among them, when he moved off. And then he heard about, through a letter from the Corinthians, he heard about some of the issues that were going on within the church. And we dealt with those things. We talked about those things back in 1 Corinthians. And when he heard about it, he decided things were so bad that he needed to go down there and deal with them. And that is what theologians refer to as the painful visit. We don't have an actual record of it. He just makes reference to it. So he makes this visit, and it's in this visit that he comes to lovingly restore them and give them correction that he is absolutely shamed and humiliated in front of the congregation. And they stood by and watched it happen. So uh, Paul leaves them in grief. And he writes what is known as the severe letter, and that is a letter that is to move them towards repentance. And this letter is actually carried to the Corinthians by Titus, who is a dear associate of Paul. And Paul was very anxious about how this letter was going to be received, and you can imagine that since he had been treated so poorly when he went by to talk to them. And uh, he was anxious about how Titus was going to be received as he brought that letter. And he was at that time in Ephesus. And it was right about that time that a riot had broken out. Just after Titus had left and gone to Corinth. And uh, that's when they drove Paul into the arena. And uh, they were going to try to do away with him there. So he went through a really tough time there and so he had to leave. Nothing tells you you have to leave like a riot and a mob. It's all for your blood. So he decides he needs to leave and endeavors to catch up with Titus because at that point Titus should be on his return journey back to Paul. And they finally connect in Macedonia. Finally, after much searching and Paul is informed by Titus that the Corinthians have actually been moved to repentance. In the preceding verses of chapter 7, Paul recounts the dread and the fear that tore his soul the whole time he waited to hear from Titus, and what great comfort he received from God through the report of Titus, and he writes about the comfort of God in chapter 1, verse 3. And we've looked at this verse, we're going to look at it again. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed, gratefully praised and adored, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all, underline that, if it's in your translation, all comfort. Now, God is the source of every comfort, And Paul sees God in Titus' report. He looks to God in this comfort. And as I mentioned before, but this is important, the Christian's not comforted in the same way that the godless are. Why? Because we're a new creation. We are absolutely created differently. Our comfort does not come from the outside in. Our comfort comes from the inside out. How does that work? Because you have Christ at your center. And the way God wants you to function is to be able to carry around the completeness of His life within you. That means whether you're in a prison somewhere or you are sitting at home or you are in a hospital room, your comfort is not dependent upon your surroundings. It's not dependent upon who comes and visits you. It's not even dependent on how many people are praying for you, though that is good. It's completely dependent upon the life of Christ at your center. That is where that comfort comes from. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, In this life, we're going to encounter a lot of harsh things. And the reality of it is, is that most of it, or a good bit of it, is beyond our ability to bear. You think, because you endure, that you have some strength to bear up under hard times. And a lot of Christians mistakenly think that they need God's help when they can't bear it. But the reality of it is, is that you're walking in the grace of God right now. The only reason that you're bearing up is because His grace is bearing you. And you endure because He allows you to endure. What He wants at at whatever point you're walking through a difficult time, is He wants you to see that it is Him that is your strength. He told Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, why in the world is he he allowing weaknesses in our life? So that we will invite and recognize his strength. That's the purpose of it. His very life is our comfort. He is the God of all comfort for the Christian. We are made for him. And ours is a comfort and a peace that passes all understanding. It's not based on our circumstances. It's the same comfort that attended Stephen as he stood before those people, literally crushing him with rocks, with his face like the face of an angel, and his gaze upward absolutely in in awe of of the vision of heaven. And he is in perfect peace while his body is being crushed by rocks. Now that is not a natural comfort. That is a supernatural comfort. And it is no different than the comfort that he continually applies to your life moment by moment. Day by day. You're not going to go as a child of God a single day without the comfort, the grace, the attendance of God. Because he is in you and about you. We are made for him and his comfort. The God, the, the comfort that God gives is not circumstantial, it's supernatural. So Paul receives comfort from God, as Titus reports at the Corinthians, now had a yearning affection for Paul. They had a longing to restore the relationship with Paul. They were repentant over the way they had treated him. So Paul writes that he regrets the pain, the severe pain caused, but does not regret the result. He didn't he didn't write them to punish them, and I'm talking about that severe letter. He didn't write it to punish them or cause them pain. That wasn't his purpose. He wrote to them to bring about repentance, to bring about a change in them. Now we look to ver, now we, we come to verse ten, which is where we left off last week. And that's where we're going to launch into our text today. Verse 10 of chapter 7. He says, For godly sorrow that is in accord with the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. So Paul's writing about two different forms of grief. Only one, leads to true, only one leads to true repentance. The other leads to death. So it's important that we understand the difference, wouldn't you agree? Repentance, one leads to repentance, salvation, and deliverance from evil, and the other leads to death. One is a healing, the other is not. Godly sorrow or grief has the Spirit of God as its source. It's not something we create within ourselves. It's not something it's some pastor Creates in you. It's not something that you get by reading the Bible. It is literally the creation of the Spirit of God, much in the same way you became a Christian. You became a Christian by a revelation of the Spirit of God. And at that point you made a you made a choice, and in that choice, you were repentant of the life that you'd lived, and you received the grace and the mercy of Christ. You received his salvation. In the same way, the Spirit of God moves us to repentance. But I want you to understand that this is not a special moment, although you could call it that. That type of interaction between you and the Spirit of God is ongoing. It is the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is our shepherd, our counselor, our advocate. He is there, and what is He doing as a counselor. He's acting like a shepherd. So what is a shepherd's job? Sheep don't know which way to go, do they? I mean, they they don't have... we're compared to sheep for a reason. The sheep are stupid. (laughs) They are. So the Spirit of God is in the center of you, guarding and guiding your soul mind, will, and emotion towards truth. When you step away from truth he will convict you. He will bring about a contrast between your behavior and your decisions and the truth of who you are in Christ. He will allow for that contrast. And at that point you have a choice to make. Repentance is part of a daily work that he does in our lives. So, Godly sorrow or grief has the Spirit of God as its source. It is the conviction of the Spirit that allows us to see sin as God sees it and will immediately cause us to grieve over our sins and how it affects our relationships. Now, here's the thing. We're not just talking about in verse 10. We're not just referencing the Corinthians' relationship with Paul. In seeking to alienate Paul, they had cut themselves off from God's discipling work in their lives. They had rejected God's ministry of truth to their souls and had deepened in their own deception. And understand this, I say this to you all the time. A Christian is not deceived because of the will of the enemy. He's not deceived or tricked into being deceived. He chooses to be deceived. A Christian chooses deception because he chooses his own way against that of the Father. So it's again back to the analogy of the sheep. A shepherd may tell you don't go there. He doesn't necessarily tell you why. But you go anyway and you fall into the mire of deception. Well, is it because there was a mire of deception that you fell into it? No. It's because you chose to go away contrary to the shepherd's guidance. You are deceived because you have chosen against God's will. Eve was deceived because of her heart to be something other than what God made her to be. She had already chosen in her heart. So... They had rejected God's ministry of truth to their souls and had deepened their own deception. They had grieved the Spirit in their rebellion. They had grieved their true being as a new creation in Christ. And that's the thing about it, guys. We always think, well, sin grieves God, yes. Sin grieves the Spirit, yes. But more than that, who are you in union with? Yes. And you and the Spirit of God are what? One spirit, that's what Scripture says. If the Spirit of God is grieved, what do you think your condition is? You're grieved. So when you choose to sin, when you enter into rebellion, you not only grieve the Spirit of God, you're acting contrary to the way God has created you. So you grieve yourself, your true self. Now sin never grieves the flesh, does it? Flesh is all on board with that, right? But it does grieve you. Listen, an unrepentant heart is a lost heart. It doesn't have God at its center. Okay? Now that's just the truth of it. A heart that is not capable of repentance does not have Christ. A heart that does have Christ is living in the trap of duality. Is in constant contrast with who he is. That is why a carnal Christian is more miserable than a lost man. At least a lost man is behaving the way he was made. But a carnal Christian is living in a duality. He's ripping himself down the center between soul and spirit. Determined rebellion and habitual sin does violence to who we are. Repentance is needed to heal the self-inflicted wound of selfishness and rebellion. We are determined in our sin when we have justified our sin. When we are in open rebellion against God, we need the healing, and I want you to see repentance that way, the healing of repentance. We need it. As we mentioned in our uh, last look at the Corinthians, carnality is literally blurring the line between the living to the flesh and living unto the Lord. The Corinthians no longer esteemed the privilege of being a holy people. They were no longer passionate about their relationship with God. They were more passionate about their liberty to indulge the flesh. And this is a state of carnality. And you can recognize it even in your own life when you find that your appetites are contrary to what you know God's are. You know in your heart. Now you might say to yourself, well, God doesn't require that of me. Or God doesn't require this of me. Yes, that may be true. But what is His heart for you? Now there are a lot of things that I do not make a rule, hard fast rule in my children's life or my kids' life for. I don't make hard, fast rules about these things because I assume that they will choose from the heart that God has given them. And here's the thing that we know. God created us for choice. He didn't create robots. So, you know what? He he didn't lay out a specific path for every situation, did He? We don't know. We have one path to follow, and it's Jesus. So here's the thing. When I am constantly choosing a path that has more to do with self-indulgence than it does the truth of God, then I've got a problem with my appetite. That is how I know. Here's an example. A lot of people don't see the privilege that it is to worship. They literally think that worship is just what they do. And that's true. God orchestrated corporate worship for a purpose. That there is a nurture in the gathering of the body. And a lot of people don't think that's necessary because they have a freedom. Well, you are a Corinthian, my friend. That's what they thought too. The same kind of justifications that they used... In order to indulge their flesh, every one of them, they could explain away with some spiritual truth. But the reality of it is, is they had a greater heart for their flesh than they did for God. They were not excited about God. There was no passion there. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. In most churches, what you see is dad leading the train. Will you hurry up? We're going to be late. And then we get inside. Oh, yes, it's wonderful. It's glorious. Then we get out in the car. Will you get out of my way? Well, that, unfortunately, is not worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Well, who's the loser here? Is God? Is God worried about performance issues? No, he's already changed your heart. He knows who you are. He grieves for you because he has set a table in the worship of his people to nurture you to affirm you you know the church part of the body of the church, the purpose of the body of the church is to affirm us in truth and unfortunately a lot of a lot of congregations are not getting affirmed in truth they're getting deceived from it they're walking away not knowing what truth is and knowing more about law than they do about grace Getting the two mixed up. Now that was a different sermon altogether. So we'll move away from there. In this state of carnality, they become more passionate about their liberty to indulge the flesh. In this state of carnality, worship becomes occasional and cultural, not spiritual. And all of this points to prolonged estrangement from the truth and an over-acquaintance with the distractions of the flesh. This was their condition. Understand me. This was their condition, but it was not their heart. That's an important distinction. They had repented, and now they were seeking healing, healing in their relationship with Paul. Repentance is healing. It's rejecting a lie and embracing the truth. It is disinfectant to the soul, mind, will, and emotions. Let's look at verse 11. As we read verse 11, what I want you to see, and many, many uh, theologians and commentators make this statement, that what you see is the best description of a repentant heart. Well, you can get in trouble with that, but reality is that what we see here is a complete 180 in the Corinthian congregation, and Paul is describing it, and he says, for you can Look back and see, see what an earnestness and authentic concern this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves against charges that you tolerate sin. What indignation at sin. And what fear of offending God. What longing for righteousness and justice. What passion to do what is right. What readiness to punish those who sin and those who tolerate sin. Now what Paul is describing is not a change. Do you hear me? He's not describing a change. This is not what they have become because of repentance. What he is describing would not be true of them if you were to cast it in the shadow of their behavior just about half a chapter up. This is who they are. This is the reaction of the new creation to sin. Every one of those things reflect the heart of the Father. They reflect Christ at the center. Why? This is not a change of heart. They have a righteous heart. Well, when did they get that? <laughs> when they were born again. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19. And I will give them one heart, not a black heart and a white heart, but just one heart a new heart and i will put a new spirit within them i will take from them the heart of stone and i will give them a heart that is responsive to my touch a heart of flesh that is responsive to my touch you know what he's describing there is a tenderness that just kind of just leans into god's every impulse a heart of love And affection. What Paul is describing are the evidences of a change of mind, a change of focus, not a change just a change of behavior. Behavior is not always a reliable indication of repentance. I'm sure you've discovered that, particularly if you've had kids. The truth is that they did not change just their behavior. What they did is they changed their focus and in repentance as we've said many times we'll go over it again it has to do with you turning your focus away from yourself and the world and turning literally putting your focus on him turning your back to to that sin to living sin to living incarnality and turning putting your focus and your worship on him who is your life that is repentance That's what repentance is. The Spirit of God motivated them to turn their souls inward from one source to another. You see, this is an inward work. At your very center, you have Christ as your life. This is Christ as your life is literally that. It means that it's the sum total of how you live. And God changed the dynamic of you as a new creation. You no longer receive from without. Now you receive from within, from the infinite source of Christ at the center. And repentance is you turning from a dead and dying life out here, which is no life at all. And turning towards true life at the center of your being. That's what repentance is. It's not about behavior. If it was, it'd be all external. You see, the change in behavior is the fruit of repentance. It's not repentance. If I change my behavior and I don't change my focus, then I have corruption. This is not work unto God. What I do is not for His glory. It's all to present a deception both to you and to myself saying, I am good apart from God.
0: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. To His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.